When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 44 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like wine, beans, and bears. Bears, I'm looking forward to that one. And you realise we have reached my age Ah. in episodes 44, episode 44, who would have thought it? (laughs) We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, simply everything, and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the feather, the feather, is in fact all about World War I mm. and the history of the American Wild West. And humiliation. And humiliation. Isn't it? The history of the book <laughs> is all about ladders, worms and chains. War. Print revolution. That sounds brilliant. The man sitting opposite me is the astronaut of Earth's history. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University's Professor James Daybell. Hello, and the man sitting opposite me is the Archbishop Hmm. of the Archives. It is the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted, frankly, highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead, and this week, it's James's turn. Chickens. (laughs) That's what I've got for us. Chickens. What are you going to do with the history of chickens, Willis? With the history of chicken. I was staying with someone who had some chickens last weekend. Did you think about them historically? A little. I was thinking about the relationship they had with their chickens in a historical way. And they had a kind of dedicated area in their garden. Yeah. The chickens produced eggs, which they ate. We also played egg catch and egg cricket, which is an outstanding game. If you've never Ooh, played egg uh, cricket. Uh, yes, an exceptional Exceptional game. game. And the kids really liked the chickens. They were kind of quite petty with them, like a lot of picking up. Some interesting writing on the eggs. Ooh, egg ooh, decorating and ooh. egg writing, instead of archiving the eggs. You'd ooh, be interested. Have in you that. ever blown an egg? Mm, no. So you put a little hole in one end and then you blow air into it yeah. and all the yolk comes out and then you can decorate it. So come Easter time, uh, your decorative eggs do not smell. Oh, I didn't know that. And you also, I mean, we've talked in the past about secret letters pushed into eggs. Wow. So you make a little slit and then you put the, the egg in. You can also dissolve the outside of an egg. So you'd basically just have the yolk. That's weird. Which is which is weird. I went to an egg party one time when I lived in, in the middle of rural Michigan. 
I went to an egg party, an Easter egg party, but it was like not Easter egg, chocolate eggs. Well, did was, everyone just appreciate each other's decorated eggs? Uh, but it was also like crazy stuff that people had done with eggs, literally dissolving eggs, dyeing them with beetroot juice. Wacky, wacky, mm. wacky, wacky. Well, anyway, so the chicken, we have the chicken itself. We have the egg that it produces. We have the human relationship with the chicken. Yeah. And as always, we have the historical sources for studying chickens. Yeah. Your technology of chickens, the development of chickens over time, the domesticization of chickens, Farming chickens. battery hens, the symbolic use of chickens. Mm. You know, we just did the importance of the cat for certain cultures. Similarly, the chicken has that sort of symbolic uh, ritual importance. Um, it's connected to eggs and diet. And apparently, we have billions of chickens. Do we? A statistic from 2003 uh, is that there were 24 billion chickens compared to... 6.5 billion people on this planet. So they are the most populous mm. bird on the planet, therefore vitally important. Yes. And are an important uh, source of food. Bill Gates, yeah. when asked what he would do with two pounds so that he would invest it in chickens. Really? Because chicken, well, I mean, you think about it, if you've got nothing in a particular part of the world, you've got nothing, but you've got two pounds, you can buy a series of chickens. They then reproduce. It's a series, pretty, the collective. Reproduce. Correct collective word quickly. for chickens. So you said a series of it's chickens. A, a series of chickens. A clutch of chickens. <laughs> a gaggle. Whatever it is. A, ch- a little a brood of chickens. Hmm. A gang of chickens. Whatever it is. They reproduce quite quickly. They're very easy to maintain. Yeah. And they produce eggs. Have so you ever kept they're, chickens? They're, I've never kept chickens. Would you like to? Uh, we ne- we looked at a house recently where they had a they had chicken pens, hmm. and I think had we moved in, we would maybe kept chicken. We got quite excited about keeping chickens, except we found that the house was it was a really beautiful house, um, but an old Jacobean longhouse which has cob walls, right? Uh, and cob walls basically in the area. We are apparently sitting on a cob wall time bomb. Hmm. Do you know much about cob walls? Not time bombs either. Not time bombs. Cob walls were basically walls made of rubbish and they're these breathable medieval breathable walls and in the 1970s somebody had the bright idea of sort of whitewashing them and so they can't breathe and they're full of all sorts of nonsense including possibly bubonic plague <laughs> um and and so they can't breathe so they they basically fall out so the idea of a house half our house falling apart did not appeal we didn't move and therefore there is a link to chickens I am I'm not a chicken farmer. Not a chicken farmer. No. Well, chicken farm is interesting, and I'm gonna to to take our first link to the happy relationship between chickens and humans, which is threatened by one rather wily unpleasant animal. Ah. I'm thinking Roll Dahl. Thinking Roll Dahl. The fantastic Mr. I'm thinking foxes. Mm. It's amazing how regularly I come back to Roll Dahl stories. Yes. It's probably because I've got yes. kids. Poaching was one I came back to earlier. The history of hunting's absolutely fascinating. And I think history is quite valuable in this, in that if people on either side of the hunting debate get focused on it as a form of pest control, one of the ways of identifying how shallow that understanding of the activity is, is to look at the history of it. And there are just a few little things I want to talk about here. Um, The first is this. I love this. This is a little... You're not showing me a table, I am. are you? Oh, my so, God, this is the first is, time I was telling you. I know, you showed me a graph you, last I time. Know, I'm I know. Actually, I've got a graph to show you this week good, as well. Good, I'm, I'm all over graphs and tables. This is the terms of venery hunting, OK? And it's all of the different terms for different aspects of hunting which were invented for it. So you've got different terms for otters, 
deer, hearts, deers, conies and foxes. So a grouping of them, you have a herd of deer, a bevy of roe, a couple of coney, a brace of fox. When they Coney um, are rabbits, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. When it hides or goes to ground, an otter watcheth, a heart harboureth, a roe bedeth, a coney sitteth, and a fox kenleth. When you rouse them out or flush them, you vent an otter, hmm. you unharbour a heart, I uh, don't know what you do to a row, question mark. A coney bolts, a fox unkennels. Um, then they have different descriptions for their noise in rut. Otter whineth, uh, heart belleth, a row belloweth, coney fox barketh, uh, and in copulation, otter hunteth, goeth to rut a heart, goeth to torn a row, goeth to buck a coney, goeth to clicketing. They're very physical, those is a descriptions, aren't they? The tail of an otter is called a rudder. How cool is that? I didn't it's know swimming, that. Swimming. Yeah. A heart is a single, a row is single, a coney's a scut, and a fox is a brush or a drag. So I think that's really interesting. And it's one of the things about hunting. It makes you aware of the class distinctions of, of hunting, which are so kind of deeply embedded in it. And the words are part of it. And some argue that it's all to do with dramatising the event and it's all to increasing the exclusivity of the hunt, making it difficult to penetrate, difficult to become involved with. It but makes it a protected activity. And of course, it's all linked with land ownership. It's linked with horse riding. Um, it's very, very difficult to get away from these class issues involved with hunting. It, it is a bit of a box of snakes, actually, when you look at it. But you realise that seeing it as pest control for the chicken is to sort of massively gloss over the immense complexity of the history of hunting. And just coming back to these words, we actually think that a lot of the origins of these words, which when they became associated with hunting, so you've got aristocrats, landowners against a peasantry who weren't allowed to hunt and, and the aristocrats who could. That originally seems to have come the same distinction between Norman French who brought hunting with them and Anglo-Saxon peasantry. And it's a kind of a much, much older route to this, this idea than you might suspect by just looking at it. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I also really like the idea, if you think about the fox itself as an animal. So in medieval times, you must know this, what did the kings used to hunt? Foxes? No. <laughs> They hunted Stag, boar, boar and deer. Yep. And that was really interesting. So, so the boar is large, it's very fierce. There's a lot of these kind of ideas of the boar as a warrior. And it was yep. edible as well. There was kind of yep. a purpose to hunting this thing. And then it was um, deer antlers, which were seen as a kind of a crown royalty restricted hunting of deer to themselves. So at some point that changed to hunting foxes. And that's really interesting. It's all to do with access to forests, the forestry going down in the period between the sort of the 14th century and the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And the ability to actually find deer to hunt and find boar to hunt. And it meant that in the 18th century, the only animal that could be hunted on horseback or that could provide a chase, mm. the same kind of dramatic, exciting chase as the boar, as the deer, was the fox. But it wasn't as violent, wasn't as fighty. There wasn't as much essential wa wa warriors and sport yeah, that could yeah, see it yeah. reflected in themselves in the animal that they were hunting. And what they tend to do is focus on the fox as a thief, as a felon and as a villain. And that's where we come back to this relationship with chickens. That's Stealing chickens. how they justified it to a certain extent. Yeah. That's how they saw their relationship 
with what was essentially vermin. So a fox yeah. is nothing compared to the majesty of a boar or the majesty of a deer. And there's a dramatic change in history related to that. And it's all, of course, to do with chickens. Brilliant. And talking about boars, I've stayed with a friend in Sweden he lives in the grounds of a beautiful uh, castle, one of the finest examples of a Renaissance castle. And we're staying there this summer. I'm slightly scared because he said that they do have boar, wild boar. There were three wild boar that came into their garden. Maybe I need to take some you know, precautions, lock the children away. Boar precautions? Um, I don't boar, know what a boar, boar precaution boar is. Boar precaution. Uh, a locked door. You need, you need a spear. Don't, don't go out. No. You need a, a spear or a group of, of hunters <laughs> to protect you. <laughs> I'm going to take this in a completely different direction and say that the history of chickens is all about female empowerment. Mm. Okay, so it's going to take me a while to get there, but in the end, <laughs> in the end, Why there don't will you start be, at the end? There will be a, there will be a significant payoff. So I want to start <laughs> with the domesticization of the chicken. Talk about that a little. So chickens as food. Uh, we can trace this back to Thailand, uh, Southeast Asia, and chickens are believed to have been descended from wild Asian red jungle fowl. So we're talking here around 7,000 BC. Oh, I've, I've been taught archaeologist friends to make tell us that. a trap for a jungle chicken. Have you? Yes, by a Burmese sort of native... I don't know quite what he was. He lived in the jungle. He taught me how to survive in the jungle and taught me how to make a trap for a jungle you have, chicken. You have jungle skills. I do have jungle skills, yeah. Goodness, chicken-related I, I, jungle I'm, skills. I'm highly skilled at watching another man make a trap. Yes, I bet. <laughs> and then eating the chicken afterwards. Yeah, useless at making it myself. It was surprisingly complicated. Anyway. So, 7,000 BC, uh, they're first domesticated, uh, coming out of Thailand. Uh, 5,000 BC, into China, uh, apparently. Uh, Chinese ate chickens and eggs by 3,000 BC spread to India, and then by 2500 BC, West Africa and Asia, and kept by Egyptians as well. And around this time, they move into Europe. And again, it's the Romans. The Romans sort of export chickens with, with what they do. And so this is partly about the role of husbandry, of chickens, and the development of chickens, the use of them for food and for eggs. There's a very interesting 20th century story about this, post two world wars, and the need to feed a growing population. In America, in the 1940s, there's a collaboration between farmers, breeders and suppliers and a, a cash prize from A&P Foods and the launch of a Chicken of Tomorrow contest. Chicken of Tomorrow. So it's the idea that basically what you are going to develop through breeding is an enormous American chicken with a huge breast for breast meat and something that is resilient to disease yeah. and grows super, super fast. Yeah. Um, so this is the sort of the prelude to the kind of factory farming that we have nowadays and battery hens and all that sort of um, distasteful business to make it pay and provide, you know, very cheap food for people. What I want to do is take this story and plonk it into modern day Ethiopia. Nice. I was recently at a town hall meeting of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, it's representative of my university, um, for something called the Global Challenges Research Fund. Right. And basically, it's a, an initiative to provide research funding for interdisciplinary academic groups to go out to various places around the world and to get involved in uh, important projects. 
I suppose what it is, it's actually the sort of last vestiges of empire, you know, sort of doing this. And there was a brilliant talk there by an academic from the University of Nottingham who described this interdisciplinary project called Going Places, Empowering Women, Enhancing Heritage and Increasing Chicken Production in Ethiopia. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. You can see it on their website. They've got videos about it, everything. Brilliant. And I think what it's really about is about interdisciplinarity. So what we have here is not just historians working in isolation, but we've got historians working with scientists and anthropologists and sociologists, a whole range of people. They're also interested in the heritage sites. And fundamentally, what they need to understand is how do you increase chicken production in Ethiopian society? Mm -hmm. Because what happened historically, what happened was, this is the kind of quick fix sort of idea of US um, imperialism. And the idea is that what you do is you take a commodity that works well in one country, and then you say, oh, this will be great. This will, you know, we'll, we'll put that into, into Africa mm -hmm. and solve problems with hunger. And so what they did was basically they gave people in Ethiopia these fat American chickens, you know, lovely white chicken meat. The problem was that didn't actually work because what happened was these chickens, they were kind of high-bred spoiled chickens, and basically you have to provide them with food, mm. you have to provide them with drugs, with antibiotics to keep them, and basically what happened was they died because they weren't resilient to the local diseases. Secondly, people didn't like white chicken meat because it wasn't <laughs> yeah. the local Ethiopian chicken meat. So what this project is doing is it's reintroducing Ethiopian chickens, which are resilient to the local diseases, cost nothing because basically they peck around in the dust and can find themselves their own food. And the people that they're giving this to are the women. So they're giving women a sort of small, you know, number of chickens that then, back to our Bill Gates example that we started off with at the beginning, that then form the kernel of this kind of enterprise for them that allow them to have some degree of agency within their own situation. Yeah. Now, where the history comes in here, and it's not just history, but it's anthropology and sociology, it's actually understanding the culture <laughs> in which the chickens are being based. Yeah. So there we are. Chickens are all about female empowerment in modern-day Ethiopia. It's amazing. I hope they get stacks more funding yeah. for it because it is a brilliant, brilliant project. And it's one of these classic examples of you know the history of something that you take for granted. Once you unpick everything yep. that surrounds it, you realise how complicated these things are and also the potential for future research. Where are you going next? With, oh, you have, oh, do you want to just do my graph? No, I, I, I love a pie chart. You love a pie chart. I'm just going to say this is very brief, this bit. Uh, for, I'm gonna, I want to talk about eggs. And I think it's about the promise of the future more than anything else. So in archaeological contexts, eggshell is something that is found an awful lot. But because of the nature of eggshell, as in it disintegrates, mm. when it's there, it fragments, or it's a better word, into yeah. thousands and thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of pieces, that it's immensely time-consuming to actually remove it safely and carefully from the archaeological context and then preserve it and then study it. And that means that 
there's a great deal of information which could be gleaned from eggshells, which is not being gleaned from eggshells. Ooh, nice. And archaeologists are starting to work out how to do it. And they've got some kind of technological breakthroughs which can help them. And this is the result of an example from um, the study of some Viking buildings in Viking Jorvik in York. And we have this... It's a terrific museum. Uh, ...pie chart here. And you can see that from this particular site, the majority of these eggs are chickens, but they also have duck eggs, they have goose eggs. And they compare them with other sites. Right. So this site here, they have um, a similar amount of chicken eggs. This one has significantly more goose eggs than this one, and it has no duck eggs at all. If you look at that site there, there's, there's a missing here. And there's some no ID, very interesting. Bird's eggs, we don't know what they are. You can start thinking about the kinds of birds they kept yeah. to eat yeah. and the kinds of eggs they had. That's fascinating. And, and why they would do that. So and are diet. you keeping the bird yeah. for feathers? Yeah. Or are you keeping the bird for eggs? Or are you keeping yeah. the bird for meat? And also the different way, different status of each of these birds. So the status yeah. of the chicken as opposed to the status of the goose, the status of the duck, and how that you know affects the society. You know, I've just I've brought that to our attention just because I think it's going to be a really, really interesting and exciting area of research in the future. So if you're sitting around wanting to do a PhD in something, please do it in archaeological eggshells. There'll, there'll be an academic career for you afterwards. There will be. <laughs> we will guarantee that. Can we do that? No, I don't think we can do that. Um, no. This, this I love. This is a picture of a, a Syrian Arabian ostrich egg, extinct in the mid-20th century. Very, very valuable because there are so few of them around. And there's the elephant bird as well. Something like 25 known surviving eggs left of the elephant bird, which used to live on Madagascar mm -hmm. and then became extinct. This is a different one, the Syrian Arabian ostrich egg. And what I liked about this is when I was staying with my friend who had eggs, is they archived their eggs to a certain extent. Not necessarily archiving, but cataloguing them. Egg from 1992. <laughs> well, you could, you could do that. The writing on the egg was an important part of their daily routine. And it's not something I'd come across before no. or seen. But I was aware of it writing on historical eggs and rare yes. eggs. yes. And the, the value of the egg is really important, actually. And so it's the egg as an object. Mm. The egg as an object was an important object for me as a young child. I grew up in a town called Hornsey, which is up in, in Yorkshire on the coast. And I went to the local primary school and they had different term dates than the secondary school. And so when the secondary school broke up slightly earlier, the sort of naughty boys from the secondary school would come and basically egg all the children really? in the playground in the primary school and they would basically collect eggs and let them go rotten so out of date egg they would save them for months and months and months and let them go rotten and then just throw them so they're, they're an early form of stink bomb i never got caught um, <laughs> but i was slightly terrified by the yeah. big boys throwing interesting off eggs so this has an inscription on it. Oh, it's not an inscription. You can't inscribe an egg. It has, it has some writing on it. This egg was taken by Charles Doughty from a nest at Bicetia within 10 miles of latitude 30 degrees north and longitude 38 degrees east, about 1880, given by Doughty to Colonel Lawrence, who gave it to me in 1922. And it's signed by Richard Meinertshagen in 1878. So it's the provenance of an egg. It's the provenance of an egg. And egg collecting was a really big thing. In uh, they don't, It's legal now. You can't do it. Right. Um, but I stayed in another friend's house, actually, recently, and he has He's his... He's done nothing but stay with friends. I know. <laughs> he has his, um, his dad's egg collection. It's an amazing, amazing thing. I've never heard of egg collecting. Have you not? Well, kind of. You'd love not... it. So they make kind of like special... Better um, than stamp collecting. Yeah, but you have special boxes made for eggs. Egg boxes. Egg boxes. They're usually wooden, and they've got right. kind of a glass 
when I saw it was in drawers. So it looks like a normal cabinet for for knives and forks. I mean, you open it up and it's full of eggs and, and each one has a little thing about where the egg came from, right. where it was found. And historians have now used these Victorian egg collecting things to map the changes in nesting habits of birds. What I like about this one, though, is who the people are. Charles Doughty, he was an explorer. We lived with the Bedouin in Arabia. Mm. Colonel Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. And the guy who signed this, Richard Meinertshagen, he was a very famous egg collector. But we now think that this is a fraud. But, but, but not just a fraud. It's not like it's written on any egg. We think that Lawrence had it. Lawrence of Arabia had it. We think it was given to Richard Meinertshagen. But we know that Richard Meinertshagen is a convicted egg fraudster. He was often stealing eggs from the Natural History Museum and passing them off of his own collection. Right. And in this case, so Charles Doughty, who is sort of a, a predecessor of Lawrence of Arabia, we know that Lawrence of Arabia greatly respected him and everything he had done in the deserts of Arabia. To have them both on mm. one egg mm. is slightly gilding the lily of yeah, yeah, a yeah. historically important egg. And it just seems too perfect a provenance for the egg. So, um, yeah, that seems to be a very unique, rare example of an egg fraud. An egg fraud. Goodness me. Who'd have thought there was such a thing? I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction. Mother hens. So, not real chickens, but the, the characteristics of chickens. The mother hen, the characteristics of a chicken and the mother hen fussing around or the hen-pecked husband. Yeah. So these characteristics that are used to describe in, in sort of stereotypical form, bossy women, bossy mm. mothers. And the male equivalent would be, is, is very different. So the male equivalent is the cock, the rooster. And the, it's about male sort of, you know, strutting around and sort of male pride, rather like the male cockerel. And what I want to use this for is to start a discussion about motherhood and about the role of motherhood. And I've worked on the history of the family for a long time now. And there's been a lot of work done on motherhood and how it changes over time. And whether you think about Lawrence Stone's sort of famous book, The Family, Sex and Marriage, where he has this very sort of um, linear progression in how he sees the family changing over time. And largely in a very sort of crude form, what you see is the rise of the affectionate family, okay? So you see the, the rise of the nuclear family and the sort of family affection over time. You see that emerging in the second half of the 17th into the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, and before that, um, families were uh, sort of cold, heartless, uncaring. I mean, it's absolute nonsense and has been really sort of overturned. But I think at the heart of it is this role of the mother and the role that women played within the family. You know, for much of our history, women in the West, you know, w women within the world have been subordinate to men, have been subjected in a lot of ways, not allowed to be office holders, often aren't allowed to inherit, to rule. I mean, you know, this is simplifying, but, you know, but the role of the mother and their role within the household, their role and power over children was a, was a way of of giving them agency and authority. Okay, yeah. And where I'm going with this is the, I suppose, the, trying to sort of look at this sort of mother hen, the nature of maternal relationships with children. And how that's changed and how we understand it. How that's changed and how we understand it. You can look at this from a, a theoretical point of view, from a feminist point of view, from a Freudian point of view. If we follow somebody like Freud, his model, I mean, his model is probably deeply flawed, because it's based on on practices 
about 19th century upbringing and breastfeeding and all of that. And so those structures don't necessarily fit to all periods. His argument is maternal omnipotence, omnipotence and dominance, which leads to two things that are really contradictory. So the mother is all important, which leads in some ways to deep bonds with the mother, but also the seeds of resentment and conflict, um, which you can probably see in, in all families. You know, the interesting thing then is to think about the roles of mothers across time. And my work on late 15th, uh, early 16th, 17th century uh, family relations has thrown up all sorts of examples of mothers. Um, You know, mothers who are letter writers, mothers who are diarists and enable us to recreate their relationship with their children. And the mothers were, you know, really powerful agents within the family at all levels you know and there's a brilliant book by a friend of mine Barbara Harris uh, who's at Chapel Hill on aristocratic women in in early Tudor England that looks at the important role of mothers setting up the careers of their children uh, and argues in fact that motherhood itself was in some ways a career so you know, mothers would be arranging marriages, would be helping place children, certainly aristocratic women. You've just done something with Susie Lipscomb on, on Henry VIII. Yeah. If you looked at the Lyle letters from the 1530s, Lord Lyle was Lord Deputy in Calais, he's a military man. His wife, Honor Lyle, is incredibly important there. And we have a body of thousands of letters, partly because Lord Lyle was accused of treason. The state move in impound all the correspondence and it's been nicely edited in six beautiful volumes but what you've got there is honor lady lyle trying to place her daughters into into the households of henry's queens Mm. throughout that period so you can see women you know very much involved you can also find examples of women who are of, of mothers who are very very assertive towards their children For example, in the Paston letter, so medieval letter collection, you've got examples there of daughters who are trying to marry suitors without their mother's permission, being dragged along the floor by their hair to sort of and being locked up to prevent them to do that. We've also got a series of mothers who who when their sons are away at university or at school have these very sort of long um, and engaged correspondences with them, showing real concern with their well-being. One of my favourites, and get this, is a letter that was found in an Oxford college, Wadham College, it was next door to my college, Hartford College. It was found under the floorboards. So the only reason it survives is because it's there in an undergraduate's room. Um, it's a letter from Lady Gower to her son Thomas, dating from 1618, And she's obviously a very religious woman. We know very little about her other than from this letter. And she writes, Tom, I am so fearful of you being now so far from me that your young years should not forget your maker, in other words, God, which hath been so beneficial unto you. I charge you daily to continue your prayers unto him. She also goes on to chide him for failure to write to his grandmother. She warns him against sin and dueling and reminds him of the need to repay his cousin uh, for a loan. She's like some mothers are today. You know, she's deeply interested in the welfare of her son and, you know, rather like a mother hen, kind of, you know, bossing him around. Yeah, it's amazing. 
and I, I think kind of the metaphorical symbolism of animals in relation to families is 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 something we could we could also look into. Gosh, yes. That is why the chicken is all about the family. It's yeah. also why it's all about fraud and Lawrence of Arabia and Ethiopia. And it's about cowardice as well. Mm. We didn't do playing chicken. Yeah. You know, chicken, you you lily-livered chicken. Yeah. Very opposite to um, a boar, isn't it? Or playing chicken, which is a game that people play crossing a road. Dangerous game. Dangerous game. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I bet you all keep chickens. I bet you've all shown me photos of your chickens. Or eggs. Or your decorated eggs. Right on your eggs. Yes. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook. And Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Twitter at the History MC.